And to be able to do it without fear of any kind of retribution um, is, is an immeasurable gift. Um, and so we remember that on this Memorial Day. And uh, we, we did this first service. I'd like to do it again. If, if you're here today and you've served, uh, if you're a veteran, you've served any of your branches of our military, or if you're here today and you currently have a close family member serving overseas, would you just stand for a second so we can thank you? Let's thank them, church. Uh, simple thanks is not enough, but do know as a church we are grateful. Um, and I'm grateful that I get to do this today without fear. Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to continue on in a story that we did half of last week. Um, and today, I'm going to talk about discord. It's not going to be fun, um, but the, the, the text demands it. Uh, in the dictionary, discord is defined as an inharmonious combination of sounds, conventionally regarded as unpleasant or requiring resolution. And immediately, everyone sitting in this corner will be like, that's exactly what you sounded like, Brett, during those first three songs. But that's not what I'm talking about here, okay? Um, discord is the opposite of harmony. That joke killed in the first service, right? You guys are a tough crowd. Come on now. All right? Discord, though, is the opposite of harmony, right? It's more than a missed note. It's, it's more than, than just uh, singing about it. It's, it's so far off rhythm and flow that you can't help but react to it. Uh, for years, the show American Idol has opened its seasons by showing people audition their singing talents before the judges. And for television, for effect, uh, they didn't just let the best of the best come in and sing for the judges. They also let the worst of the worst come in and audition as well. Um, and throughout the years, the reaction of these judges while these terrible singers butcher these songs is just a sight to behold. They actually physically move away from them, right? There's pain on their facial expressions. They they cover their faces because they can't bear to watch, and that's what discord does. It it upsets us. It's ugly. It's hard to watch. It's difficult to stomach, and you you just want it to stop. And today in Luke 15, Jesus will purposely introduce discord into his story. He's going to do it to make a point, Because he wanted his original audience and us today to see how ugly and how uncomfortable and how upsetting this is. And this only makes sense in the entire context of the chapter. So look with me at the beginning of Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Because this is going to set the scene. Luke 15, starting in verse 1, says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. We're told here and throughout the Gospels that Jesus often attracted the members of society that almost everyone else despised. The tax collectors, one of the most hated groups in the day, other notorious sinners, Luke tells us, the the adulterers, the prostitutes, whoever had a public known sinful lifestyle. And somehow Jesus' presence, somehow his countenance and his teachings and his gracious words, somehow he just drew those types of people to himself. For their entire life, religion had pushed them away, but Jesus drew them in. And Luke tells us there was another group that noticed this. It was the Pharisees, the religious elite, the teachers of the law. They saw this and they had a visceral reaction to it. Well, if this guy was really religious, they'd say. If he was really from God, then he would not be spending time with these people. But there he is. He's, He's even eating with them. What a disgrace. 
And Luke tells us that Jesus was fully aware of both dynamics. He knew that the sinners had run to him, that they were hanging on his every word. And he knew that the religious elite was standing to the side, separating themselves far enough away to be seen as separate from this, but staying close enough to critique and criticize whatever they didn't like. And so Jesus, with his audience making up those two groups, tells three stories in Luke 15. And all three stories have the same distinct purpose. In the first story, a man loses a sheep and he drops everything to go and find it. And when he finds it, he calls in his neighbors and friends together to celebrate with him because he has found his lost sheep. In the second story, a woman loses a coin and she drops all her other responsibilities until she can find the coin. And when it is discovered, she calls in all her friends and neighbors and tells them to rejoice with her because she's found it. At the end of both of these stories, Jesus drives the point home saying, in the same way there is joy and celebration in heaven when a single sinner repents and turns to God. And then he tells a third story with the same effect, the the third story which we looked at the first part of last week, where the son goes to a father and asks his father for his share of the estate before the father dies. And shockingly, the father agrees, and the young boy takes everything that his dad gives him, and he sells it all, and he takes all the money, and he runs away as far away from his father as he can. And when he's blown through all his money, a famine hits the land he's in, and he ends up as a slave feeding pigs. And so when he finally comes to his senses, Jesus tells us, he decides to return home, and he will ask his father to forgive him and just let him be a slave in his house. He knows he doesn't deserve to be a son anymore. He just wants to serve. But then we're told that his father sees him coming and runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. He gives him a ring and and shoes and a robe and he orders the fattest calf killed so they can all celebrate and have a party because the son of his who was lost is now found. His son who is by all means dead to him is alive. And these two audiences, this crowd in front of Jesus would be hanging on every word and the tension would be palpable. Because the first group, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, would have this feeling of hope welling up inside of them to be told that heaven would rejoice if they would repent and turn to God. They would know that they are the lost son. If they just turn to God, he will run to them. And for the first time in their lives, they're hearing of God's grace and not his judgment. They're hearing of his love and his passion for them and his invitation to them to come home. They aren't hearing they're not good enough. They aren't hearing that they're beneath his grace. And the second group, the Pharisees and religious elite, they had aspects of their theology that were all messed up, but they weren't stupid. They would know that these three stories in succession were being told to fly directly in the face of the sentiments they expressed at the beginning of the chapter. And with each passing story, they would be getting angrier and angrier and angrier, and the tension would just keep building, and then Jesus takes it up a notch. Because all three stories followed the exact same pattern. Something valuable was lost, and then the search was on. The man searched for his sheep. The woman looked everywhere for the coin. The father peered at the horizon every day, hoping his son was coming home. And when the sheep and the coin and the son were found, it was time to party. Friends and neighbors were invited. The fattest calf was killed, and there was joy, and there was relief, and there was celebration for what was lost is now found. And at the end of the first two stories, Jesus drove home the point that all heaven rejoices when just one sinner repents. And so if you were in that crowd on that day, you would expect that to be the end of this story about the son. You expect Jesus to say, the father said, kill the fatted calf. We must celebrate with a feast. My son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in heaven when one of God's children returned to him. 
That ending would have kept everything in harmony. That would have followed the same formula, the same pattern of the rest of the chapter. And Jesus' point would have been made effectively, but Jesus doesn't do that. He purposely introduces discord. Because Jesus didn't want to make his point effectively. He wanted to do it in a way that his hearers would never forget. And so instead of ending the story by describing the party and saying, I tell you in the same way, Jesus says, meanwhile, the older son was out in the fields. And all of a sudden he brings in another main character to the story. And the addition of this character is designed specifically to pour salt into the wounds of the religious elite who are standing to the side and scoffing. This is not a passive story. This is a direct, aggressive attempt by Jesus to upset the apple carts of all in his audience who have completely missed the point. And so let's take a look at this older brother. We're going to start with some context in verse 22 to hear the end of the younger son's story, and then we'll go through verse 28. So verse 22 in Luke 15. The younger son has returned home, and this is what we're told in verse 22. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. See, we're introduced to this older brother as he's doing what we would expect him to be doing. He's been out in the fields working. It's what he's been doing all along. Right? Why his brother sold his father's property and ran off foolishly, he stayed. Why his brother ran away, he was the faithful one. And so he's coming back from a day in the fields as he has countless times over the years, only he notices something different on this day. There's sounds of joy, sounds of celebration, there's music and dancing, Some, something big is going on. So he, grabs, he calls over one of the servants and says, what's, what's the deal, what's happening? And then he gets the news that his whole family has waited who knows how many years to hear. His brother is back. His long-lost brother is back home, and he is safe, and the family is full again. And you would expect him to drop everything and run. Because finally, his brother is back where he belongs. Finally, they can be whole again. You would expect this to be the great news he'd been waiting to hear for so long, only he doesn't drop everything. He doesn't run to his brother. He doesn't even go to him at all. He actually gets angry, Jesus tells us. And in a move befitting of a four-year-old, he throws a fit and refuses to go in the house. Jesus continues the story. Verse 28. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. And so his father came out and begged him. But he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. That, friends is discord. That's ugly. It's tough to watch. It's tough to listen to. It's tough to hear. His father receives word that he will not come to the party, and so he goes out to plead with him. And the response that we see from this older son to his father reveals so much, and none of it's good. The most tragic thing that it reveals is that after all these years of life with his father, he has completely missed the point. 
After all these years as his father's son, he has no idea what it's all been about. Just the way that he recounts his life, just the verbiage he uses as he defends himself, shows us how far off he is. The first thing you see is that he's been keeping a record. He's been updating his resume in his head as he goes. He leads with all his years of service. Don't you realize how many years I've slaved for you? There's not one single time you've told me to do something and I didn't do it. Forget the fact that it's not true. He believes it. And then in all those years of faithful service, you know what you've given me? Nothing. Not even one little goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And the irony hasn't hit the older brother, but it would have hit Jesus' audience. The younger brother made a mess of his life through a series of terrible choices. He tried to find freedom away from his father only to realize that the only true freedom existed back home with his father. And so the younger brother comes home with the request, all I want is to be a slave. And he was accepted as a son. But the older brother never left. He never stopped being a son. But since he has completely missed the point of all of it, the irony is that he is bound in slavery. The irony is that the son who stayed home the whole time now feels like a slave. And he feels that way because he's been keeping score. And he thinks that the role of his father is to reward him for his faithfulness. So when his brother comes home and he gets a party after being unfaithful, that's just too much to take. Listen, Christian, one of the greatest, most freeing things that you can do for your soul is to stop keeping records. Just stop tabulating your resume. Stop counting how many years you've been in church, how long you've served. Stop, stop recording your long history of faithfulness. Because what that begins to do in you is that begins to take root in your heart and without you even knowing it, it does an awful dark work in you where you begin to believe that you have put God and others in your debt. And when you get there, you're almost unusable for the kingdom. Man, if anybody throughout history could have kept a resume, it would have been the Apostle Paul. The guy wrote most of the New Testament. He planted more churches than anyone else. He suffered on the behalf of the gospel more than anyone before or since other than Jesus. He led countless people to Christ. And at the end of his life, he's writing a letter to his protege, Timothy. And this is what he writes. He writes, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. And Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He didn't tell Timothy how many churches he planted. He didn't write about how many people he led to the Lord. He didn't write about how many servants he'd given. He was simply unable to get over the fact that Jesus saved and appointed him even though he was unworthy. And that was the secret to his success. See, the older brothers missed the point. He he sees himself as a servant, as one who's earned his father's blessing, as the one who deserved the party, and it's resulted in a really sad life. What's missing from his existence and experience is joy. What's missing is submission. What's missing is brokenness. And this incorrect understanding of his role as a son has darkened his heart to where he's now, he's just unteachable. He's unflinching. He just can't be influenced. I mean, look at the story. Did he even go check out the party? Did he go and talk to his brother and ask, hey, hey man, why, why did you come home? Did he pull his dad to the side and say, you know what, you know what dad, I'm just kind of struggling to understand this. Can you help me grasp your thinking on, on why you're throwing this party? He didn't do any of that. 
He stood outside without going in, without talking to anyone, without having any, hardly any knowledge of what was going on, and he made up his mind about it. The party was wrong, and it should have been for him. And this incorrect understanding of his role as a son also darkened his heart, where he's no longer able to think straightly about sin. Because he begins to exaggerate his own righteousness and then assume the worst in other people. In that culture, as the elder son, it would have been his duty in that day to go be a master of ceremonies for any party or banquet that his father had held. It was understood that any grievances that existed would all be set aside until after the banquet ended. And by refusing to go in, he would be putting his father through public humiliation and embarrassment. And everyone there would notice. Yet when his father comes out, he paints the picture as if he's the perfect child who's never done anything wrong. And what's more on top of that is he's assuming the worst in others. In verse 30, he mentions that his brother has squandered all their father's money on prostitutes. Now, where did that come from? He hasn't gone in to see his brother. He hasn't seen him in years. His brother went to a faraway country. There was no Facebook in the first century, okay, for that guy to put incriminating photos of himself. The only detail that Jesus tells us, in fact, was that the younger son engaged in wild living. The brother, this older brother, has went in and filled in the details in his mind as what he thinks is the worst possible scenario without really having any clue what his brother's been up to. And then he's accusatory of his father as well. He thinks that this party is an endorsement of his brother's wild living and his father doesn't celebrate him for staying, but he throws a, brother, throws a party for his little brother after he acts like a fool. So he's assuming that his brother has acted in the worst way possible and he's assuming that his father is acting with the worst intentions possible and he has no knowledge of either. It's ugly and it just keeps getting uglier. Because in Luke 15, everybody is celebrating. The shepherd and all of his friends and all of his neighbors, the woman and all of her friends and all of her neighbors, the father and the prodigal son and all their servants and all their neighbors and all their friends, all of heaven, all the angels, all are joyous, all are celebrating, all except this older brother who has traded his joy for resentment. He's traded in his freedom for slavery. He has traded places with his brother. See, the story begins with the younger brother making the crucial mistake and thinking that he didn't need his father and his life turned to ruin because of it. And now he is home and his older brother is making the same critical mistake because he's carrying himself as if he's no longer a member of the family. When he addresses his father here in verse 29, he doesn't address him as father. He doesn't give him that title. That's a huge no-no in that culture. At the start of the story, even when the younger brother was coming to ask his father for his share of the estate, he addressed him as father. Even when his request was, you're better off dead to me than alive, he still called him father. But the older son doesn't pay his father that respect here. Then when he's talking to his father, he refers to his brother as this. He calls him this son of yours. You see, he's separated himself physically from the party. Now he is pulling back and separating himself from any ties with this family. And his father sits there and hears all of this. He hears all the discord, all the ugliness, all the wrong assumptions, all the errors in his son's way of thinking. And he could demand that his son come to the party and keep his mouth shut until the party's over. And that might work. Because if there's anyone in the story who understands duty and following rules, it's the older brother. He knows that well. But you see, the heart of the father is not for his sons to have begrudging obedience. It's why he gave the younger son his portion of the inheritance. 
He wasn't going to force him to stay. That's why he's not going to order his older son to join the party. Because he's gotten begrudging obedience from the older son his entire life. And we can see the results from that. And so his father does something much more powerful than scream or demand. And we find that in verse 31. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now he is found. You see, the father knows that this older brother has missed the point all these years. It's become evident now. And so he appeals to him. He teaches him. He tries to show him what he has failed to see. And he starts by showing that for all these years he's missed out on what the prize really is. Because deep down, what the older brother believes is that his younger brother has got the best deal. He got to run off. He got to experience all those things that our sinful nature wants to experience. And then he comes back and gets a party. What's bad about that? But what the older brother doesn't know is what the younger brother now knows. That life away from the father isn't freedom, it's slavery. He doesn't know his brother almost starved to death. He doesn't know about the pigs. He doesn't know about rock bottom. And his father tries to tell him, you, you've been here with me. He reminds him, you are my son. You've been with me all along. And on top of that, you're all worried about a calf or a young goat. Everything that I have is yours. The younger son has already blown his portion. It's all belonging to the older brother. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love keeps no record. Lamentations 3 tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. The father tells his older son, you are not a slave, you are my son. And if I'm not enough, if life with me is not enough, then nothing ever will be for you. Because the prize is life. The prize is communion. The prize is relationship with his father. And this older son has missed the point. He's missed the prize. And now his father tells him, you've missed the purpose of this all. The purpose of this party, the purpose of the fatted calf, the purpose of the ring and the robe and the running and the dancing, all of it. You've missed it all. And the purpose is this. Your brother is home. Don't you get it? Your brother is home. By all means, he was dead and now he was alive. He was lost and now he was found. The family is reunited. They're all where they need to be. And nothing that happened before this moment is more important than the fact that your brother is home. And if his heart is so darkened and hardened that he cannot celebrate that, then there's nothing more the father can say to him. There's no other card to play. Luke 15 is an incredible chapter. But I stand for as, as one who thinks it's an incredibly meaningful one for me personally. Because I get it, right? I get the, the fully understand the theological implications. I get that we are all the younger brother. That we all live like we don't need God. We all run away from God. We all need to repent and turn back to, to the Father. That's your story. That's my story. That's everyone's story. But if I'm honest, I, I most readily identify myself with the older brother. Because I've walked in his shoes. I've come to his conclusions. I've carried his attitudes. And so it's a difficult story for me to go through. Growing up, I did whatever I could to build my life in a way that made people think the best of me. It wasn't authentic. I wasn't the real deal, but I wanted people to think I was. 
And so I didn't ever run off to the distant country. Right? In high school, the distant country was Indian Oaks Campground, where any teenage boy in Cloverdale could find whatever he desired. In college, the distant country was Muggsy's or the off-campus apartments. I saw a lot of people, including my friends, run off to the distant country. And part of me was, was genuinely concerned, so I'd confront them about it, but I never did it with any love whatsoever. And if I'm real with you, I felt better than them. I felt a certain self-righteousness over them. I convinced myself that somehow my sins were less sinful than their sins. And so I carried myself as if I was above them. And when their choices began to result in consequences, I actually felt vindicated. And it was that attitude that, that took root in my heart. And I began to prescribe to a religious mindset that looked exactly like the older brother. I did things. I did good spiritual things, sure. But since I did them, God better reward me for them. I dressed the part. I read only a certain translation of the scripture. I did all I could to separate myself from those who did not match my level of piety. I began reading into people's lives and actions as if I had the ability to see into their hearts and understand their motives. I looked down on people for what they wore to church instead of celebrating the fact that they had come to learn more about Christ and worship him. I would make judgments on people based on what was on their skin or hung from their ears instead of what was in their heart. I gave great care and detail to what I or others presented on the outside while all the while ignoring God's work in their hearts and mind. And I was convinced that I was right and everyone else was wrong. And most of all, I was powerless. Because I didn't need God anymore. I was killing it for him. What God needed was more people like me on this earth. And it was discord. And it was ugly. And it's difficult to think or even remember. I was a dark, unloving person fully convinced that I was the real deal. And I thank God that he used my parents and one of my college professors in passages like Luke 15 to peel back that curtain and let me see who I'd become or else today I would have been even more rooted in that darkness. Because what the Lord revealed to me in his word and through those people was that I'd missed the point. I'd missed the prize. I'd missed the purpose. See, the point of Christianity is not that I've earned anything. It's not that I have or ever could put God in my debt. The point is that God moved in abundant grace towards a sinner like me. That Jesus Christ came and made the move towards us. He came and died for our sins and rose again to offer us eternal life. And that the only way to receive that is to realize that we are sinners who deserve nothing from God. And when we turn to him with that attitude, he gives us everything. The prize of Christianity is that we get to live this life as sons and daughters of the living God. The prize is not material things that God can give us. It's not answers to prayer even. The focus is not on what God hasn't done for us. The focus is on what he has done for us. That sinners, unworthy, rebellious sinners like you and I actually get Jesus. We get him. We get his love. We get his influence. We get his direction. We get his power and we get his grace. We get to go through the ebbs and flows of this life with one thing this world can never take away from us, and that's Jesus. Because he is eternal, because he has overcome this world, because he has paid our price, because I am his and he is mine. The point is grace. 
And the prize is Jesus. And the purpose for all of this is for God's glory to spread all over this earth more and more by people joining his kingdom. And the church of Jesus Christ now spreads all over this world. And there's a party going on both in heaven and here. And at this party are sinners who have found grace in the, per- in the person and reality of Jesus. Person after person with checkered past who have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. Person after person whose life and decisions led them down a path that was heading for destruction. And then Jesus intervened. And it's a party because what we are celebrating is grace. It's a party because heaven demands it to be one. And at this party are young and old, black and white, Asian, Hispanic, Arabic, educated, uneducated, rich and poor, people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And at this party, our diversity is lifted up and celebrated because what we have in common is greater than what we don't. Because what we have in common is that we are sinners saved by grace. And it's interesting to me how Jesus ended the story. And it's interesting because he doesn't really end it. You can imagine yourself on that day. You can imagine the group of people standing around Jesus, the sinners who are overjoyous at the story of the younger son and the Pharisees who are enraged by the inclusion of the older brother. But Jesus is such a master storyteller that all of them, all of them would be waiting with, with bated breath to, to, to see what the older brother will do and Jesus just walks away. Very next verse in your Bible, start of chapter 16. He's in a different time speaking to a different group. Why did he walk away? Why did he stop? Why not finish the story? Well, Jesus stopped because the ending of the story has yet to be written. See, the older brother is left with a choice. He can turn away. He can cling to his bitterness. He can hold tight to his distorted view of his relationship with his father. Clinch on to the idea that somehow he is worthy and somehow others are not. He can hold on to the belief that he has gotten it all together and that the Father should be more impressed with him. Or he can let go. He can let go of his pride. He can let go of his self-worth and view of accomplishment. He can see that he needs his Father just as much as his little brother does. And he can walk into that house and he can see the brother he hasn't seen in years and run to him and embrace him. And he can feel his father's embrace the same way his brother felt it hours before. And he can spend the rest of his life joining in the celebration for the entire family at home. And the reason that Jesus doesn't end the story is because it's more than a story. It's because Jesus knew that as long as human beings existed, there would be older brothers. From those in his very audience all the way to me and every time period in between. And Jesus cuts off the story where he did because the end has yet to be written. He cuts off the story where he did because the story is not a story. It's an invitation. And the invitation is this. Join the party. Join the party. You don't have to separate yourself any longer. You don't have to pull back and hide away. You don't have to pretend that you've got it all together. You don't need to go around building up other people's sins and dismissing yours anymore because in the party, grace flows. In the party, it's all about Jesus. In the party, you realize nothing is more important than leading other people to him. And so you set down happily your personal preferences. You're you're struck by God's beauty and grace and you experience joy. 
And there's one here today who identifies with this younger brother. You're sitting out there and you feel like you've, you've ran from God your entire life and, and you're tired of that. You're tired of trying to find your own purpose and your own answers. You're tired of feeling empty. Then we have nothing to offer you this morning but Jesus Christ. Come and find him. Come and accept him into your life. Come and join the party of forgiven sinners who have found grace and purpose and identity and joy in Jesus. But if you're here today and you identify with the older brother, then we have nothing to offer you but Jesus Christ. Come to him. Repent of those heart characteristics. Find his grace anew. Find him again as you did for the first time as a wave of relief and freedom and grace and then join the party and get to work helping us bring others in as well. Let's pray.